Section thirty nine of the Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume four. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume four by James Boswell, Section thirty nine. On Monday, June the twenty eighth, I had the honour to receive from the Lord Chancellor the following letter to james boswell esq sir i should have answered your letter immediately if being much engaged when i received it i had not put it in my pocket and forgot to open it till this morning i am much obliged to you for the suggestion and i will adopt and press it as far as i can the best argument i am sure and i hope it is not likely to fail is dr johnson's merit but it will be necessary if i should be so unfortunate as to miss seeing you to converse with sir joshua on the sum it will be proper to ask in short upon the means of setting him out it would be a reflection on us all if such a man should perish for want of the means to take care of his health yours etc thurlow the letter gave me a very high satisfaction i next day went and showed it to sir joshua reynolds who was exceedingly pleased with it he thought that i should now communicate the negotiation to dr johnson who might afterwards complain if the attention with which he had been honoured should be too long concealed from him i intended to set out for scotland next morning but sir joshua cordially insisted that i should another day that johnson and i might dine with him and that we three might talk of his italian tour and as sir joshua expressed himself have it all out i hastened to johnson and was told by him that he was rather better to-day boswell i am very anxious about you sir and particularly that you should go to italy for the winter which i believe is your own wish johnson it is sir boswell you have no objection i presume but the money it would require johnson why no sir upon which i gave him a particular account of what had been done and read to him the lord chancellor's letter he listened with much attention then warmly said this is taking prodigious pains about a man oh sir said i with most sincere affection your friends would do everything for you he paused grew more and more agitated till tears started into his eyes and he exclaimed with fervent emotion god bless you all i was so affected that i also shed tears after a short silence he renewed and extended his grateful benediction god bless you all for jesus christ's sake we both remained for some time unable to speak he rose suddenly and quitted the room quite melted in tenderness he stayed but a short time till he had recovered his firmness soon after he returned i left him having first engaged him to dine at sir joshua reynolds's next day i never was again under that roof which i had so long reverenced 
On Wednesday, June the 30th, the friendly confidential dinner with Sir Joshua Reynolds took place, no other company being present. Had I known that this was the last time that I should enjoy in this world the conversation of a friend whom I so much respected and from whom I derived so much instruction and entertainment, I should have been deeply affected. When I now look back to it, I am vexed that a single word should have been forgotten. Both Sir Joshua and I were so sanguine in our expectations that we expatiated with confidence on the liberal provision which we were sure would be made for him, conjecturing whether munificence would be displayed in one large donation or in an ample increase of his pension. He himself catched so much of our enthusiasm as to allow himself to suppose it not impossible that our hopes might in one way or other be realised. He said he would rather have his pension doubled than a grant of a thousand pounds. For, said he, though probably I may not live to receive as much as a thousand pounds, a man would have the consciousness that he should pass the remainder of his life in splendour, how long soever it might be. Considering what a moderate proportion an income of six hundred pounds a year bears to innumerable fortunes in this country, it is worthy of remark that a man so truly great should think it splendour. As an instance of extraordinary liberality of friendship, he told us that Dr. Brocklesby had upon this occasion offered him a hundred a year for his life. A grateful tear started into his eye as he spoke this in a faltering tone. Footnote Wyndham says that when Dr. Brocklesby made this offer, Johnson pressed his hands and said, God bless you through Jesus Christ, but I will take no money but from my sovereign. This, if I mistake not, was told the king through West. Dr. Brocklesby wrote to Burke on July the 2nd, 1788, to make him an instant present of a thousand pounds, which, he continues, for years past by will I had destined as a testimony of my regard on my decease. Burke, accepting the present, said, I shall never be ashamed to have it known that I am obliged to one who never can be capable of converting his kindness into a burden. End of footnote. Sir Joshua and I endeavoured to flatter his imagination with agreeable prospects of happiness in Italy. Nay, said he, I must not expect much of that. When a man goes to Italy merely to feel how he breathes the air, he can enjoy very little. A conversation turned upon living in the country, which Johnson, whose melancholy mind required the dissipation of quick successive variety, had habituated himself to consider as a kind of mental imprisonment. Yet, sir, said I, there are many people who are content to live in the country. Johnson. Sir, it is in the intellectual world as in the physical world. We are told by natural philosophers that a body is at rest in the place that is fit for it. They who are content to live in the country are fit for the country. Talking of various enjoyments, 
i argued that a refinement of taste was a disadvantage as they who have attained to it must be seldomer pleased than those who have no nice discrimination and are therefore satisfied with everything that comes in their way johnson nay sir that is a paltry notion endeavour to be as perfect as you can in every respect i accompanied him in sir joshua reynolds's coach to the entry of bolt court he asked me whether i would not go with him to his house i declined it from an apprehension that my spirits would sink we bade adieu to each other affectionately in the carriage when he had got down upon the foot-pavement he called out fare you well and without looking back sprung away with a kind of pathetic briskness if i may use that expression which seemed to indicate a struggle to conceal uneasiness and impressed me with the foreboding of our long long separation i remained one day more in town to have the chance of talking over my negotiation with the lord chancellor but the multiplicity of his lordship's important engagements did not allow of it so i left the management of the business in the hands of sir joshua reynolds soon after this time dr johnson had the mortification of being informed by mrs thrale that what she supposed he never believed was true namely that she was actually going to marry signor piozzi an italian music-master rogers describes him as a very handsome gentlemanly and amiable person madame d'arblay tells her one evening at dr burney's home when signor piozzi was playing on the piano mrs thrale stealing on tiptoe behind him ludicrously began imitating him dr burney whispered to her because madam you have no ear yourself for music will you destroy the attention of all who in that one point are otherwise gifted mrs thrale took this rebuke very well this was her first meeting with piozzi it was in mr thrale's lifetime End of he endeavoured to prevent it but in vain if she would publish the whole of the correspondence that passed between dr johnson and her on the subject we should have a full view of his real sentiments as it is our judgment must be biased by that characteristic specimen which sir john hawkins has given us poor thrale i thought that either her virtue or her vice would have restrained her from such a marriage she has now become a subject for her enemies to exult over and for her friends if she has any left to forget or pity Footnote. the last time miss burney saw johnson not three weeks before his death he told her that the day before he had seen miss thrale i then said do you ever sir hear from mother no cried he nor write to her i drive her quite from my mind if i meet with one of her letters i burn it instantly i have burnt all i can find i never speak of her and i desire never to hear of her more i drive her as i said wholly from my mind 
End of footnote. It must be admitted that Johnson derived a considerable portion of happiness from the comforts and elegancies which he enjoyed in Mr. Thrale's family. But Mrs. Thrale assures us that he was indebted for these to her husband alone, who certainly respected him sincerely. Her words are, Veneration for his virtue, reverence for his talents, delight in his conversation, and habitual endurance of a yoke my husband first put upon me, and of which he contentedly bore his share for sixteen or seventeen years, made me go on so long with Mr. Johnson. But the perpetual confinement I will own to have been terrifying in the first years of our friendship and irksome in the last, nor could I pretend to support it without help, when my coadjutor was no more. Alas, how different is this from the declarations which I have heard Mrs. Thrale make in his lifetime, without a single murmur against any peculiarities or against any one circumstance which attended their intimacy. Footnote. The saying of the old philosopher who observes that he who wants least is most like the gods who want nothing was a favourite sentence with Dr. Johnson, who on his own part required less attendance, sick or well, than I ever saw any human creature. Conversation was all he required to make him happy. Miss Burney's account of the life at Streatham is generally very cheerful. I suspect that the irksome confinement described by Mrs. Piozzi was not felt by her till she became attached to Mr. Piozzi. This caused a great change in her behaviour and much unhappiness. He at times treated her harshly. Two passages in her letters to Miss Burney show a want of feeling in her for a man who for nearly twenty years had been to her almost as a father. On February the 18th, 1784, she writes, Johnson is in a sad way, doubtless, yet he may still with care last another twelve month, and every week's existence is gained to him who, like good Hezekiah, wearies heaven with entreaties for life. I wrote him a very serious letter the other day. On March the 23rd, she writes, my going to London will be a dreadful expense, and bring on a thousand inquiries and inconveniences, visits to Johnson and from Cator. It is likely that in other letters there were like passages, but these letters Miss Burney, for cogent reasons, destroyed. End of footnote. As a sincere friend of the great man whose life I am writing, I think it necessary to guard my readers against the mistaken notion of Dr. Johnson's character which this lady's anecdotes of him suggest. For from the very nature and form of her book, it lends deception lighter wings to fly. Let it be remembered, says an eminent critic, footnote, who has been pleased to furnish me with his remarks, Boswell, no doubt Malone, who says, however, on the whole, the public is indebted to her for her lively, though very inaccurate and artful, account of Dr. Johnson. End of footnote. 
that she has comprised in a small volume all that she could recollect of dr johnson in twenty years during which period doubtless some severe things were said by him and they who read the book in two hours naturally enough suppose that his whole conversation was of this complexion but the fact is i have been often in his company and never once heard him say a severe thing to any one and many others can attest the same when he did say a severe thing it was generally extorted by ignorance pretending to knowledge or by extreme vanity or affectation two instances of inaccuracy adds he are peculiarly worthy of notice it is said that natural roughness of his manner so often mentioned would notwithstanding the regularity of his notions burst through them all from time to time and he once bade a very celebrated lady who praised him with too much zeal perhaps or perhaps too strong an emphasis which always offended him consider what her flattery was worth before she choked him with it now let the genuine anecdote be contrasted with this the person thus represented as being harshly treated though a very celebrated lady footnote hannah moore she with her sisters had kept a boarding-school at bristol end of footnote was then just come to london from an obscure situation in the country at sir joshua reynolds's one evening she met dr johnson she very soon began to pay her court to him in the most fulsome strain spare me i beseech you dear madam was his reply she still laid it on pray madam let us have no more of this he rejoined not paying any attention to these warnings she continued still her eulogy at length provoked by this indelicate and vain obtrusion of compliment he exclaimed dearest lady consider with yourself what your flattery is worth before you bestow it so freely footnote she first saw johnson in june seventeen seventy four according to her memoirs he met her with good humour in his countenance and continued in the same pleasant humour the whole of the evening she called on him in bolt court one of her sisters writes miss reynolds told the doctor of all our rapturous exclamations about him on the road he shook his scientific head at hannah and said she was a silly thing he afterwards mentioned to miss reynolds how much he had been touched with the enthusiasm of the young authoress which was evidently genuine and unaffected she met him again in the spring of seventeen seventy five her sister writes the old genius was extremely jocular and the young one very pleasant they indeed tried which could pepper the highest goldsmith's retaliation and it is not clear to me that he was really the highest seasoner from the moors we know nothing of his reproof he had himself said of a literary lady no doubt hannah moore i was obliged to speak to miss reynolds to let her know that i desired she would not flatter me so much miss burney records a story she had from mrs thrale which she continues exceeds i think in its severity all the severe things i have yet heard of dr johnson saying 
when miss moore was introduced to him she began singing his praise in the warmest manner for some time he heard her with that quietness which a long use of praise has given him she then redoubled her strokes till at length he turned suddenly to her with a stern and angry countenance and said madam before you flatter a man so grossly to his face you shall consider whether or not your flattery is worth his having shortly afterwards miss burney records that mrs thrale said to him we have told her what you said to miss moore and i believe that makes her afraid he replied well and if she was to serve me as miss moore did i should say the same thing to her we have therefore three reports of what he said one from mrs thrale indirectly one from her directly and the third from malone however severe the reproof was the moors did not seem to be much touched by it at all events they enjoyed the meeting with johnson and hannah moore needed a second reproof that was conveyed to her through miss reynolds End of footnote. how different does this story appear when accompanied with all these circumstances which really belong to it but which mrs thrale either did not know or has suppressed she says in another place one gentleman however who dined at a nobleman's house in his company and that of mr thrale to whom i was obliged for the anecdote was willing to enter the lists in defence of king william's character and having opposed and contradicted johnson two or three times petulantly enough the master of the house began to feel uneasy and expect disagreeable consequences to avoid which he said loud enough for the doctor to hear our friend here has no meaning now in all this except just to relate at club to-morrow how he teased johnson at dinner to-day this is all to do himself honour no upon my word replied the other i see no honour in it whatever you may do well sir returned mr johnson sternly if you do not see the honour i am sure i feel the disgrace this is all sophisticated mr thrale was not in the company though he might have related the story to mrs thrale a friend from whom i had the story was present and it was not at the house of a nobleman on the observation being made by the master of the house on a gentleman's contradicting johnson that he had talked for the honour etc the gentleman muttered in a low voice i see no honour in it and dr johnson said nothing so all the rest de bien trouvé is mere garnish i have had occasion several times in the course of this work to point out the incorrectness of mrs thrale as to particulars which consisted with my own knowledge but indeed she has in flippant terms enough expressed her disapprobation of that anxious desire of authenticity which prompts a person who is to record conversations to write them down at the moment unquestionably if they are to be recorded at all the sooner it is done the better this lady herself says 
to recollect however and to repeat the sayings of dr johnson is almost all that can be done by the writers of his life as his life at least since my acquaintance with him consisted in little else than talking when he was not absolutely employed in some serious piece of work she boasts of her having kept a commonplace book and we find she noted at one time or other in a very lively manner specimens of the conversations of dr johnson and of those who talked with him but had she done it recently they probably would have been less erroneous and we should have been relieved from those disagreeable doubts of their authenticity with which we must now peruse them she says of him he was the most charitable of mortals without being what we call an active friend admirable at giving counsel no man saw his way so clearly but he would not stir a finger for the assistance of those to whom he was willing enough to give advice and again on the same page if you wanted a slight favour you must apply to people of other dispositions for not a step would johnson move to obtain a man of vote in a society to repay a compliment which might be useful or pleasing to write a letter of request etc or to obtain a hundred pounds a year more for a friend who perhaps had already two or three no force could urge him to diligence no importunity could conquer his resolution to stand still it is amazing that one who had such opportunities of knowing dr johnson should appear so little acquainted with his real character i am sorry this lady does not advert that she herself contradicts the assertion of his being obstinately defective in the petite morale in the little endearing charities of social life in conferring smaller favours for she says dr johnson was liberal enough in granting literary assistance to others i think and innumerable are the prefaces sermons lectures and dedications which he used to make for people who begged of him i am certain that a more active friend has rarely been found in any age Footnote. johnson says murphy felt not only kindness but zeal and ardour for his friends who he asks was more sincere and steady in his friendships numbers he says still remember with gratitude the friendship which he showed to them with unaltered affection for a number of years End of footnote this work which i fondly hope will rescue his memory from obloquy contains a thousand instances of his benevolent exertions in almost every way that can be conceived and particularly in employing his pen with a generous readiness for those to whom its aid could be useful indeed his obliging activity in doing little offices of kindness both by letters and personal application was one of the most remarkable features in his character and for the truth of this i can appeal to a number of his respectable friends sir joshua reynolds mr langton mr hamilton mr burke mr windham mr malone the bishop of dromore sir william scott sir robert chambers and can mrs thrale forget the advertisements which he wrote for her husband at the time of his election contest the epitaphs on him and her mother 
the playful and even trifling verses for the amusement of her and her daughters, his corresponding with her children and entering into their minute concerns, which shows him in the most amiable light. She relates that Mr. C. H. Blank unexpectedly rode up to Mr. Thrale's carriage, in which Mr. Thrale and she and Dr. Johnson were travelling, that he paid them all his proper compliments, but observing that Dr. Johnson, who was reading, did not see him, tapped him gently on the shoulder. "'Tis Mr. C. H.," says my husband. "'Well, sir, what if it is Mr. C. H.?' says the other sternly, just lifting his eyes a moment from his book, and returning to it again with renewed avidity. This surely conveys a notion of Johnson as if he had been grossly rude to Mr. Chumley, a gentleman whom he always loved and esteemed. Footnote. George James Chumley, Esquire, grandson of George, third Earl of Chumley, and one of the commissioners of excise, a gentleman respected for his abilities and elegance of manners, Boswell. When I spoke to him a few years before his death upon this point, I found him very sore at being made the topic of such a debate, and very unwilling to remember anything about either the offence or the apology. Croker. End of footnote. If, therefore, there was an absolute necessity for mentioning the story at all, it might have been thought that her tenderness for Dr. Johnson's character would have disposed her to state anything that could soften it. Why, then, is there a total silence as to what Mr. Chumley told her? That Johnson, who had known him from his earliest years, having been made sensible of what had doubtless a strange appearance, took occasion, when he afterwards met him, to make a very courteous and kind apology. There is another little circumstance which I cannot but remark. Her book was published in 1785. She had then in her possession a letter from Dr. Johnson dated in 1777, which begins thus. Chumley's story shocks me, if it be true, which I can hardly think for I am utterly unconscious of it. I am very sorry, and very much ashamed. Footnote. Mrs. Piozzi lays the scene of this anecdote in some distant province, either Shropshire or Derbyshire, I believe. Johnson drove through these countings with the Thrales in 1774. If the passage in the letter refers to the same anecdote, and Mrs. Piozzi does not, as far as I know, deny it, more than three years passed before Johnson was told of his rudeness. Baretti, in a manuscript note on Piozzi Letters, Volume 2, Number 12, says that the story was Mr. Chomley's running away from his creditors. In this he is certainly wrong. Yet if Mr. Chumley had run away, and others gave the same explanation of the passage, his soreness is easily accounted for. End of footnote. Why then publish the anecdote? Or if she did, why not add the circumstances with which she was well acquainted 
End of section 39.